I apologize for my hoarseness. I got a little too loud at a Louisville City soccer game on Friday and have not recovered. Um, this morning we'll be preaching from Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And as you turn there, let me uh, say another prayer. Lord, we thank you for our time together this afternoon. Um, Lord, as we come to your word, may we see your truth. May you grant us understanding of that. And if it is a truth that we already know, may we ponder on it more. May we be amazed at it yet again, that it would grip our hearts and that we would take it with us from this place as we depart this afternoon. Or we pray that you would just, your spirit would use me, that you would use me in my weakness to convey the truth that is found in your word. And, and uh, you would be with us this afternoon. Amen. There's a story. Does anybody collect sports memorabilia? I did as a kid. I loved sports cards, so I was always collecting baseball cards. But there's a story about someone who was going through some old memorabilia in an attic and came across the Babe Ruth autographed baseball. And on the baseball, as they examined it and deciphered what the, what the signature was, they noticed that the signature was very faint. The letters had, had faded over the years. In their ignorance or, or misunderstanding, they took over that, that baseball and wrote over Babe Ruth's name so that you could see the signature a little bit better. And in doing so, of course, they made the baseball their worthless. That, it was not Babe Ruth's original autograph, and it made the baseball worth, worth nothing. It was worth a lot of money before that. But as we come to this text this morning, we see something similar happening with the Galatians. When they were taking the gospel and adding something to it, they were either in their ignorance or their misunderstanding or wanting to exert their, their power and authority were adding requirements to the gospel, and therefore they were making the gospel worthless to the people, to the Galatians. It's fitting that probably that I preach this today, because um, one of the big issues that, or the issue that we see here, is the issue of justification by faith alone. And of course, on Wednesday, on October 31st, we celebrated the 501st anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the, the 95 Theses to the door on the castle at Wittenberg. And it was by accident. It was not planned, but uh, maybe it's fitting that we, that we examine this truth uh, this morning. And, but the, the, those 95 Theses brought out the Reformation in the church, and they were based on the five solas. We've heard them before, but we'll be reminded of them again. It was sola scriptura, sola scriptura by scripture alone, Sola grata, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola Christus, by Christ alone. And soli de gloria, for God's glory alone. So as we come to Galatians 5, 1 through 6, let's go ahead and uh, kind of get a background of, of what's led up to this chapter so far. As Russell read before, Acts 15, there was the same issue going on there in the church at Jerusalem. And in the coming weeks, when Andy gets there, we will, we will see this issue again. And it was not something, an issue that was unique to the church in Galatia. But they were requiring uh, circumcision 
for those who wanted to be Christians. They said that in order for you to be a Christian, you also have to be, has to be circumcised. So as we come into the book of Galatians, the first four chapters, Paul will lay out the theological truth. He, he goes, he puts the, he gets the theology laid out there. And in the final two, two chapters, chapters five and six, he applies that, that theology. He says, this is true, so then this is how, how we must, must live. As I said, there was false teachers coming into the church and, and teaching a false gospel. And this was causing conflict, of course, between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And then they were saying that in order for the Gentiles to be saved, they had to become like the Jews. They had to be circumcised like they were. Paul doesn't explicitly say that in the first four chapters. He hints at it. But in chapter 5, we, we know specifically what that issue was. And we see in Galatians 1, uh, 6 and 7, that, that they are not teaching the gospel that Paul had taught to them. And he calls it another gospel. But in fact, this other gospel is not really the gospel because it, it is false and it is, it is not true. As we uh, continue on in, in chapter 2, Paul recalls of a meeting that he had uh, with Peter, James, and John. Uh, now, one thing I should mention, that, that we believe that Galatians was written before Acts 15 in that Jerusalem council about the issue of circumcision. And we think this largely in part because Paul doesn't allude to that Acts 15 of the meeting there within the book of Galatians. So we think that if he would have, that Acts 15 meeting would have happened before the book of Galatians, he would have made reference to it, but he doesn't. But he recalls the meeting that he had with Peter, James, and John. And, and in this meeting, they all agreed that Titus, who was Greek, who, who would not have been circumcised, did not need to be circumcised, despite all the pressure from the leaders of the church, from, from false teachers, saying that he needed to be circumcised. And he also reminds them of how he rebuked Peter at Antioch, because Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles and started hanging out with uh, those who advocated uh, for the necessity of circumcision. And in chapter 2, we see a few verses that kind of are foundational, kind of are, are very important verses within in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law since by works of the law of the flesh, no flesh will be justified. And in 2, 20 through 21, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave up himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. As we continue on in chapter 3, he gives the Old Testament example of Abraham, who was declared righteous because of his faith, not because of works. And Abraham was, was promised that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, both Jew and Gentile. And in verse 28 of chapter 3, we see that there in Christ there is now no distinction. There is no Jew or Gentile, and we are all one in Christ. Going back to Chapter 3, verse 10, he says that all that rely on the works and don't keep the law are cursed. 
And verse 11 says, the righteous shall live by faith. And we are reminded that, that the law is good, but it was never to bring life and it was to act as a guardian for us until, for us until Christ came. As we look into chapter four, Paul reminds the Galatians that they are children of God, that they are not slaves, but they are sons and daughters. And right before we come to this passage in five, chapter five, we are reminded of the story of Hagar and Sarah. And he says that the children of Hagar were slaves and they are not children of Hagar, but they are children of the promise that Sarah was promised, that Sarah and Abraham were promised through their seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham and Sarah believed that by faith. The big idea this morning is this, that the law brings hopelessness, despair, and death. But in God's grace, faith in Christ has brought something better, far better. It's brought hope, freedom, and life. Let me read that again. Uh, The law brings hopelessness, despair, and death. But in God's grace, faith in Christ has brought something far better. It has brought hope, freedom, and life. The first thing that we see here uh, in verse 1 is freedom from the law. Paul again says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And this idea of freedom kind of sets an overarching idea or theme that we're going to see here in the final, the final two chapters of Galatians. But when we think of freedom, there's a lot of different things that can come to mind when we think about freedom. You know, as Americans, we, we value freedom, and we think maybe one of the things that comes to mind, or some of the things that come to mind, are freedom of speech, the freedom for us to gather this morning to worship, the freedom to share our faith, uh, freedom of the press. Uh, we have a lot of freedom. But maybe to some, it's freedom from persecution of their faith. If, if this passage was read to somebody of our, our persecuted brothers and sisters, they may have that idea. Or freedom from going to the prison for their faith. Or maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking that freedom is, means that you can do anything that you want to do. I don't have to listen to mom and dad. I don't have to obey rules at all, that you are free to do uh, whatever you want. At, at, all, at every level, at some level, uh, this is what we as humans want. We, we want freedom. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But the reality, reality of the human condition is that we are in bondage and we are in, in slavery. And this goes back to the garden, you know, the curses that we see there. That Adam would work, that he would toil, that he, was, that he had to work the, guard, work the ground and there was the curses. And the Bible frequently uses this imagery, imagery of slavery throughout. We see it in the Old Testament in Egypt, that the Israelites were under the bondage and slavery of the Egyptians. And later on, Israel would go into to captivity and be slaves again. And this idea, the this, this slavery imagery, is picked up in the New Testament as well. But here in verse 1, uh, Paul reminds the Galatians of the freedom they have 
in Christ and that we do too. And this freedom that he's referring to is from a freedom from the curses of, of the law. We said earlier that the law was good and it was given as a guardian, but that it doesn't bring about salvation or righteousness or life. I think this is a good time to ask, what is the purpose of the law? Why, why was the law given? And there's four, four reasons that we have the law. So let's just quickly go over that. The first thing is that the law was to provide a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgressions so that they, when they did sin, that they could offer up a sacrifice for that sin. But the second thing, it was, it was to t- teach people uh, more clearly what God requires and thereby restrains transgressions. So by, by saying what God required, it would keep the people from sin. And, and we have laws for, for us too that, that restrain us from doing, doing sin, doing evil. If we didn't have those laws, we would be a, there'd be chaos and, and anarchy. The third thing we see that the law was to show that transgressions violated an explicit written law. And the fourth thing that the law was to do was to reveal people's sinfulness and their need for a savior. You see, the law was never meant to save, but it was to show that the holiness of God and to point them to their need for, for a savior. So what is this freedom from the curse of the law? I think there's three aspects that we see that, that we are free, free from. And the first is that we are free from sin. Those who are in Christ are no longer bear the wrath of their sin and the burden of their sin. That was all placed upon Christ on the cross when he died for our sins. We are forgiven our sins, but we are not only declared, we're not forgiven, but we are declared uh, not guilty. And Christ was cursed for our sins. He bore our iniquities, and we don't have to have to bear those. The second thing we see is that there's a freedom from death. When Adam sinned, all humanity plunged, was plunged into death. And that the curse of the law and the curse of our sin brings death. And all humanity is under that curse. But those who are in Christ because of the resurrection, because of his work, have eternal life and will not face death. And the third thing that we see is that we are freed, freedom from Satan. As I said before, through the curse of sin, all humanity is under Satan's stronghold and in bondage to Satan. There's apparent freedom. We may think that we're free and we're not, but without Christ, we are slaves to sin. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We see that through the work of Christ, that the stronghold that he broke and we are no longer slaves. Slave, we're not slaves of sin, no longer slaves of Satan. But then out of that slavery, we are free to serve God, that we are free to obey him. This is a powerful truth that we, that we are no longer slaves and we are free. And I think that this is something that we should, that we should ponder and think about more often. 
that we don't have to sin, that we are not slaves to sin, that that's not who we are. You know, sometimes we use, use that as an excuse to say, you know, I'm going to sin because it's just the way that God made me. That's just who I am. But for those who are in Christ, that, that is not who we are. We are, we are children of God. We are, we are servants of the Most High God and no longer slaves, slaves to sin. After commanding them or reminding them of this promise of their freedom, Paul gives them a command there in the end of verse 1. Paul tells them to stand firm and don't be subject to the yoke of slavery. Uh, this imagery of yoke, it's a, a, a farming imagery. Uh, when you had like a, to plow the field, you would hook up the yoke to the oxen. It goes around their neck and it would pull, pull the oxen or the, the, the cows would, would pull, pull the plow or wagon or whatever it might be. And it restricts the movement and it's burdensome. And I imagine for the, the, it's not an easy thing to pull. Uh, just this week, by happenstance, we did a yoke carry where we put weight on your back and you walked with a bunch of weight on your back. And, you know, my steps were, were small and they were hard and I couldn't move very fast. Or you think about old farmers that would put a yoke around their neck and carry buckets of water from the, from the well uh, to wherever they were taking it. And it, it didn't allow for ease of movement. It was restricting and it was hard work. So Paul picks up on, on this imagery. And first century Ju- Judaism taught that salvation was not through grace alone, but it was through, through grace plus keeping the law. And when they taught this, it brought the people into the, it, was, it placed a yoke upon them. It was burdensome. It was, it was hard work to keep the law. But this idea of trying to obtain salvation and righteousness, that, that, that idea is, if we think about it, how hard that is, that, that we have to be good enough to keep the law, that all the, the sacrifices that we would have to make, make for our sins and the more that we try to keep the law and, and obtain it and obtain salvation, in reality, the further we get away from, from Christ, we will begin to rely on those works more and more and more and neglect Christ. There's an example, uh, Luther talks about how he tried to do this before he, before he came to faith in Christ, that he tried to keep the law. And the more he did it, the harder and harder it got for him that he thought he was doing good and then he would, he, he would realize that he need, there was more that he had to do, that there was more laws that he was breaking. And as he did this, the, well, the more and more he tried to be obedient, the more and more into despair he went. It was this vicious cycle for him, that he could never be good enough, that no matter how hard he tried, he could never obey the law and could never obtain righteousness. As we... Go on there in the passage. We see in verses 2 through 4 the futility of the law. Uh, Paul says in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by by law, you have fallen from grace. 
So here we see that Paul explains why the requirement of circumcision makes no sense. And in fact, it's detrimental and, and, and dangerous. And Paul says that as if we, we require circumcision, then we have no need of Christ. That negates the, the work of Christ. We no longer need him. And the gospel becomes a ben, no benefit. And then we therefore lose justification by faith alone. But was the issue really with, with circumcision? The issue wasn't really, really wasn't with circumcision, but rather with what it represented. If you remember, he had Timothy circumcised. But what the mistake was that they believed that the circumcision was a requirement and necessary for, for salvation. And in doing, in doing so, and in adding this requirement, it makes of Christ of no benefit and him not needed. If forgiveness and righteousness can be earned, what, what need is there for Christ? What need is there for his birth, for his death and resurrection? Those things are all not necessary. Christ did not have to come to earth and die for our sins if we can earn our salvation. Again, Luther in his commentary says, let us bear this in mind when the devil accuses our conscience. When that dragon accuses us of having done no good at all, but only evil, say to him, you trouble me with the remembrance of my past sins. You remind me that I have done no good, but this does not bother me. Because if I were to trust in my own good deeds or despair because I have done no good deeds, Christ would profit me neither way. I am not going to make him unprofitable to me. This I would do if I should presume to purchase for myself the favor of God and everlasting life by my good deeds, or if I should despair of my salvation because of my sins. So if we trust in our deeds today, we are making Christ of no benefit to us. We don't need him. And in, as a result, what it would do for us, it would lead us to despair and hopelessness because we are continuously and endlessly trying to obtain that salvation. And this is what those who were advocating for the circumcision were doing. Let's, let's pause this morning and ask ourselves, what is our mode of justification? How do we think that we are, are made right with God? Are we trusting in the work and the person of Christ alone? Or do we believe that because we're here this morning, that you know, we, yeah, we believe the gospel, but you know, my church attendance is gonna is gonna help me. That I'm going to, I've given enough money to the church. That my parents are Christians, or I grew up in the church, or I haven't committed any of those bad sins, so you know, I'm gonna be okay in, in the end. Is is our trust in Christ and His work alone? Or maybe that we are putting unnecessary burdens on other people to come to salvation. Maybe we're saying that their theological systems need to be like, just, exactly, just like ours. Or maybe their political beliefs need to be like ours, or that they don't listen to certain music. Are we adding unnecessary burdens and a yoke of slavery to other people that, that th- and telling them that their salvation can be earned by their works?
as we continue on in verse 3, we see even more why the law is ineffective. Uh, He says, again, to every man who receives circumcision, that he is under um, obligation to keep the whole law. So it wasn't just a matter of being, being circumcised. If you are trusting in circumcision and works, it's not just keeping the circumcision, but you need to keep the whole law. And that task is, is impossible. If you, if you want to keep the law, you can't just keep one part of it. You've got to keep the whole law. And that's what Galatians 3.10 says. That those... Who, who rely on works and don't keep all the law are cursed. As we continue on in verse 4, Paul uses uh, some cut off or, or sever language. And I don't think that's by accident. He's talking about circumcision and severing. And then he says here that in verse 4, you, you are severed from Christ if you are trusting in your works. If you think that circumcision, severing off some skin is going to obtain salvation and going to lead you in Christ. He says, in fact, you are cut off from Christ. You are severed from Christ. You have not obtained him at all. Requiring circumcision and, and trying to keep the law does not obtain Christ. It does not obtain salvation, but it has the complete and opposite effect. It separates us from Christ. It cuts us off from Christ and creates hell-bound sinners who are trusting in their works. Philip Ryken uses an example of uh, a rabbi uh, in, in early Christianity who, who was reading Ezekiel 18.5, and it talked about the requirements for, for righteousness and salvation and how only a just man can obtain righteousness. And as a result of that, he read it and he wept because he realized that there is no hope. There is no way that he could, could be just and he could be righteous because he, because he sinned. So we have to ask ourselves, what hope do we have? If we have this yoke, this burden, if we are slaves to sin, what, what hope is there for us? And we see that hope in verses 5 through 6. Uh, when Paul writes, uh, For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You see, there is, there is hope for those who, tra- who place their trust fully in Christ. And we await that hope of righteousness. One day, we will stand before, before God and we will be declared not guilty. And we will, be set, we will be, have the righteousness of Christ. And it is by faith alone that we obtain this hope of salvation. Not on the basis of works, but on the pa- basis of Christ's work on, on the cross. We are saved and we are declared righteous. We're declared righteous but we are awaiting a day when that will be fully realized, that one day that when we no longer have that struggle of sin, that there's not going to be this battle of the flesh when we no longer have to choose whether to obey the flesh or obey God, and we can obey God fully and completely. 
And in verse 6, he says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means nothing. And as you read that, you're like, what are you talking about, Paul? Because we've been talking about circumcision here for these, for, for these six verses. And now you say it means nothing. Um, but it only means nothing if you have faith in Christ. It is through faith in Christ that circumcision doesn't matter, that it becomes irrelevant and unimportant. Jew or Gentile, it does not matter because we are all one in Christ. Now, on one end of the, end of the spectrum, we have what would be called legalism, when we are trying to obtain righteousness and salvation by keeping the law, by doing good works. But I don't want you to hear this morning that because it's faith in Christ that we are declared righteous and, and are justified, that we can do anything we want. No, that's not, that's not the kind of freedom that we should have. And if we would continue on, excuse me, if we would continue on uh, in chapters 5 and 6, we see that, that the importance and the role of works in our lives, they, the role of good works are not irrelevant. And we recall Romans 6.1 uh, when he talks about if we should continue in sin so that grace may abound. And Paul says, certainly, certainly not. How can we who died to sin continue in it? No, because of the freedom that we have, we should seek to, to love and serve others. But it's not the basis of our salvation. We are free. We don't have to worry about keeping the law. We don't have to worry about going and making sacrifices. We don't have to worry about whether we're okay with Christ right now. We are free to serve and love one another. As we continue on in chapter, uh, chapter 5, in verse 13, um, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And in verses 16 through 17, he talks about denying the flesh and walking in the Spirit. And in verses 22 through 23, we see the fruit of the Spirit. If we continue on in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 2, we see the instruction to bear one another's burden. And then also in verses 9 and 10, through doing good one to one to another. So this morning, let us be reminded of the freedom that we have in Christ. May we, may we be freed by that. May, we, may it allow us to serve one another, to love one another more to do good to others. But don't hope in salvation because of those, those good works that we do. May we consider Christ and the gospel more often. May we praise him that our justification is by faith in him alone and not, not on anything that we do and it's not dependent upon us. because it's through faith in Christ that we have hope, that we have freedom, and we have life. Let me close this up in prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, this word today. Lord, I pray that as we go here that we would be reminded of it, that we would rely, that we would trust solely in you, that we would 
not trust in our works, no matter how good they are, that we would not be despondent because of our sin, thinking that we can't be good enough to be saved because it is in you that we have salvation and it is on the basis of your works that we do. May that encourage us. May that free us. May that help us to share you. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Amen.